Um, so anyway, without further ado, uh, please give a nice warm Conway Hall round of applause for Guy. Thank you, Carmen. And, and just to say, the, the only reason I asked you to say as little as possible is just not to embarrass me with sort of some sort of big introduction. But yeah, thank you. Um, thank you very much for having me here today. It's great to see so many people here wanting to hear about land ownership on a Sunday afternoon, which is very exciting. Can, just firstly, can everybody hear me? Is that all right? Uh, yeah, great. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, so my name is Guy. Uh, I'm a campaigner. I consider myself an environmental campaigner first and foremost, but a couple of years ago I started getting really interested in the subject of, of land and uh, particularly land ownership. Sorry, yes. Too fast. I will slow down, project, be more relaxed. <laughs> if I speed up, please let me know. Yeah. So, so a couple of years ago, I decided to start looking into the subject of land and land ownership. And this was perhaps coming from a number of, uh, of, of reasons for me. One, one was the fact that I was starting to look into flooding more uh, in my role, in my campaigner role at Friends of the Earth. And I started getting interested in the need to plant trees, to reduce flooding, natural flood management it's called in the technical jargon. Well then if you want to do that, how do you actually get more landowners to plant trees? Land ownership is clearly crucial to things like that. Um, but it got me into a kind of going down this rabbit warren of, um, of who owns England. Um, and so, so one of the things that I've really found um, fascinating about the subject of land and land ownership is just how secretive it still is and how much of a kind of a bit of a taboo there still is around the subject of land ownership, in, particularly in, in England. This, is, this photo is taken um, outside one of the gates to MOD Foulness in um, Essex. Uh, in, uh, it's, it's, it's a secret military island off the coast of Essex that... I think very few people seem to have ever heard of. Um, you know, you might have heard of the Ministry of Defence's lands at Salisbury Plain or um, you know, uh, some of their other military training places. But this is, this is particularly secretive. It's, a, it's an island, um, quite a large island really. It's very low-lying. It got completely flooded during the 1953 um, Great Flood. Um, and it's where the nuclear weapons programme, Britain's nuclear weapons programme, began in the um, 40s and 50s. Um, and so there's lots of it that is still kind of off limits because of historic contamination of the land, use of things like testing of beryllium shells, which are very nasty if you inhale beryllium, not good for you at all. Um, but I think it just encapsulates some of the secrecy around land. Yeah, can, actually, is it better to turn off some of the lights so we can see the slides? Um, that's a bit better. Great. Yay, perfect. Thank you. Um, you know, there's a huge secrecy around landownership in, in, in England, and, and the MOD kind of encapsulates some of the, the worst aspects of that, not just um, the fact that, you know, there's huge areas of, of MOD land fenced off, barbed wired, um, with intimidating signs like, like this one here. But on MOD Foulness, there are also bylaws in place which actually are meant to prevent photography. So I really enjoy taking pictures of signs saying no photography on the island. But to even get onto the island, you can actually only get onto it. There's, there is a civilian population of about 100 or so people who live in the villages still. So there, there is obviously kind of access onto it. But there's one route on, um, one, one road onto it. And it's open at, uh, every first Sunday of the month in the summer months between the hours of 12 noon and 4 o'clock. And you have to book ahead to be able to go onto it. And woe betide you if you turn up like I did with my friend uh, on bicycles, but without bike helmets. Because then the, the security guards from Kinetic, who are the private security firm who run the base uh, for, on behalf of the MOD, this privatisation in action, um, they say they, they, they love, they have a great power trip every time. They go, right, you you've got to sign up, you've got to give us all your information, but if you come here with a, without a bloody cycle helmet, then you're not getting onto the island. Luckily, they did eventually let us on so we could go around and have an explore. Anyway, this is just a microcosm of some of the secrecy around land ownership in England. Obviously, the MOD is likely to be one of the, you know, the, the most secretive, although actually, as we'll see in a minute, they, even they gave me some maps of what the, the land they own. But there's, there's a bigger question here. There's a bigger question about the secrecy around who owns any sort of land um, in England and Wales. Now, who ha you, the land registry, the land registry is the official body that exists um, to register the ownership of land in England and Wales. And it's existed for about 160 years. But in that 160 years, it's still not actually finished the job of registering who owns England. I mean, you had one job, guys. What have you been doing all that time? And for, so there's about 17% of, of, of England and Wales that has, still hasn't been registered. So it's still a complete mystery is about who actually owns that little 17%. The 83% left over 
um, which you can, which, which has been registered, you have to pay three pounds for every single field, parcel of land, building, etc., to find out who owns a, a single one of them. Now there are 20 million land titles in the land registry, so tot it up somewhere in the region of 72 million pounds if you wanted to buy the lot. Then if you try to publish all that information, they'd sue the pants off of you because Ordnance Survey and Land Registry have restrictive agreements, restrictive um, licenses in place on the republication of that information. So you can, you can find out who owns England and Wales, but for a, a princely sum, which clearly I didn't have when I started out trying to write this book. So, so to try and find out that answer to that book, I had to do some other things. But firstly, I want a bit of audience participation. Okay, who's heard of the Doomsday Book? You've all heard of the Doomsday Book, 1066 and all that, obviously, good. Um, we all learned about it at school when King William the Conqueror came over, the Norman Conquest, 1066, conquered all of England, vested, seized the land to be uh, owned entirely by the crown and then passed it out again to his um, 200 Norman barons, the clergy who were propping him up, obviously, saying he was the, you know, the God's rightful ruler on earth, and so on and so on. Um, great, great. So we know about that. Who's heard of the second Doomsday Survey? This is a very well-informed audience. Several people have already, already heard of the second Doomsday Survey. For the benefit of everyone else, the second Doomsday Survey was conducted 800 years later by the Victorians. It was, um, it was a response to calls for land reform that were coming about in the, um, in the aftermath of the Chartists um, in the second half of the, eight, of the 19th century. And uh, various censuses that had been done at the time seemed to show that a, a, a remarkably small number of people were landowners. But, and, and so there were all these radicals going, this is outrageous, this, is, this is just exemplifies the inequality in, in Victorian Britain today. Um, so the House of Lords, in their wisdom, said, obviously, of course, composed of many of these very large landowners, said, no, 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 this is not, can't be true. Everything must be much more democratic now. I'm sure this isn't correct. All these radicals are talking, talking rubbish. Let's do another survey. Let's do a doomsday survey of our own to find out who owns the country. So they sent out surveyors and people to local authorities, and they got the results back in over a couple of years. And the results came back, and funnily enough, the radicals were actually proved remarkably right. It turned out that around 4,000 members of the aristocracy and gentry owned about half of England at the time, which is pretty staggering. Um, for the people who've heard of the second Doomsday Survey, I've got another little test for you. Who's heard of the third Doomsday Survey? <laughs> and the fourth? <laughs> I'm not making it up. I'm not making it up. You see, so, so, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think that it's, you know, there's that many things that are genuine conspiracy theories in the world. But I do think there is a bit of a cover-up that's gone on over, or at the very least, a, 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 a convenient forgetting about the, the politics of land and land ownership. I can come on to some of those other surveys in a bit, but they were, they were done in the Edwardian period by Lloyd George, who was a big land reformer, wanted to be a big land reformer, and by Churchill during World War II, but we'll come on to them later, maybe. Anyway, um, on to, on to the more, more of the modern day. So um, you might just be able to make this out, this map. This is, um, this is a map that you can, you can see at map.whoandsengland.org in a much more exciting interactive format, zoomable, and so on. Um, I, I did the research behind this, uh, but built it with a fantastic um, computer programmer and data analyst called Anna Powell-Smith. Um, there's reference at the top there. This is, this is as, basically as far as we've got in terms of, of mapping of um, information on, on land ownership so far. Um, there's more information in the book and there's more information that I've got sort of on the website, but this is kind of the most comprehensive map we've been able to produce so far. Just a few things on it to point out. You can see, so this is obviously only part of England, South England, um, and a bit of Wales. You can see Salisbury Plain here, so all the areas in black are Ministry of Defence land. If you over here is what I referred to earlier, Foulness, MOD Foulness. Um, uh, all the purple stuff, including bits of kind of the shoreline, that's the Crown Estate. Uh, you can see Windsor over there, kind of um, west of London. All the sort of red patches and blobs you can see are offshore-owned and overseas-owned companies who own bits of land in, in Britain. And, and that was research that was done by, by Anna and Christian Eriksson, a, a, a brilliant private eye journalist, a few years ago. They did a great expose of some of that information, so they kind of let me reuse this, some of this data here as well. Anyway, so... so uh, a lot of this information hasn't come directly from the land registry. It's come from things like, because obviously they're not open and they're very, very expensive to buy lots of information from them. Um, it's come from things like using freedom of information requests. 
something in Freedom of Information Law, which was brought in um, in 2005. Um, Tony Blair famously called it his, his greatest mistake to bring in Freedom of Information Law, which I think was probably overlooking something, uh, maybe a few things, in fact. Um, anyway, it was actually a brilliant boon for citizen journalists and for every, anyone who wants to request information from public authorities. So you can put in FOI requests, as I did here, to um, you know, the Ministry of Defence, even. and They eventually gave me a map of their land holdings, a digital map. Uh, other, other councils have given me maps of, sort of land that they own or have been registered with them. And one of the, one of the great workarounds I've found as well and, and been given sort of tip-offs about this is, is something called Highways Act maps. So this is an incredibly boring clause to an, other, an extremely dull act called the Highways Act 1980, section 31.6, if you really want to know, um, which, by which uh, big landowners, often big estates, register their land with the local authority to say, I don't want anyone else coming and putting a public right-of-way over my land. So it's like, get off my land, but in a kind of slightly more technical way. Um, and the, the, the function of that is, is obviously to defend the estate from future rights-of-way claims. Okay, fine. Um, but the, the, kind of the, the downside from the point of view of the landowner is actually that those maps then exist on the back pages of, of, of local authority websites, and so if you know where you're looking, you can find them. Um, and then some of them have digitised those maps, and that's what I've been using here to try and show some of the land ownership. And what that has shown in some respects is, is one of the thing I th think one of the most shocking things I think about land ownership in England nowadays is, is that it's enduring inequality. And that, I think, is exemplified with a, pic a map of the home county, one of the home counties where I grew up, a nice leafy town of Newbury, so good they had to put a, a bypass around it. Um, in the 1990s, this is, this is West Berkshire, the county of West Berkshire, and this map shows you who owns quite a lot of it. And as you can see, just 30 landowners, by my calculation, own nearly half of the whole county. So again, another little bit of audience participation. Who do you think is the biggest landowner in West Berkshire? Any guesses? Crown. The Crown? Wrong. Let's have anybody want to raise on the Crown? The Church of England, uh, I, I actually haven't, couldn't find any land owned by the church in, in West Berkshire. I'm sure they do, but good, another good guess. Anybody, anybody else? Any more? Offshore. offshore. Okay, so offshore. So we've got a bit of, so these sort of slightly red-coloured blotches here, we've got quite a lot of offshore ownership. That, funnily enough, corresponds to Lambourne, which is the after Newmarket, the second biggest horse racing, horse stud um, kind of establishment in, in the UK. So, you know, why are all these horse studs owned offshore? We don't know. In, in tax havens. Um, uh, anybody else? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Normans. Um, I mean, maybe descendants, potentially. I'll, I'll put you out of your misery. It's actually the MP. The MP, Richard Bennion MP, the, the richest um, member of the House of Commons, who owns this huge, big, light blue coloured estate, the Englefield estate. All that land over there um, is, is his. It's his, his Englefield Estate Company, and he gets large amounts of farm subsidies as well as do many of these um, organisations as well. So, um, great. Okay, fine. Oh, yeah, question? Um, I don't know if his family dates back as far as the Norman Conquest. We'll come on to some people like that in a minute, but it certainly goes back several hundred years. Um, an interesting story about his uh, deer park uh, at his, in his estate a village was demolished and moved to make way for it back in the 1700s. So the, have you heard of Oliver Goldsmith's The Village? It's a, it's a poem, you know, um, ill fares the land, uh, blah, 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 blah. Wealth, wealth accumulates and men decay. You know, I mean, that's a good example of that, really. Um, Did you say several hundred years? Se several hundred years ago. Several hundred, yeah. I'm not quite sure when his family itself came into, came into the Englefield estate. There's a quite a lot of questions. I mean, I, I would quite like to go through and then, and then maybe... Slow down, okay, slow down. This, it's just really exciting, that's all. Sorry, I will slow down. Um, so, 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 you know, you might say, okay, well, you know, you, you grew up in a quite privileged part of the country, the home county, one of the home counties. Obviously, it's going to be unequal there. It's all very wealthy and so on. Um, isn't, it, isn't it different elsewhere? Well, I'm sadly, probably not really. Um, by um, my best estimates, about 1% of the population, probably considerably less, own half of all England, um, and um, you know this is this is this is the, the way I've come up come up you know come up with this sort of calculation is by looking at things like um, official farm statistics. So um, the government publishes information on 
um, the size and the number of farms there are in the UK. Obviously, a lot of them are tenanted farms, but you can look at some of the data and try and, you know, try and kind of come up with a, with a, a reasonable estimate there. But it's also backed up by things like, uh, and a couple of people have already come up to me and said, well, how does your book differ from previous books on this, like Who Owns Britain by Kevin Carhill, um, which was written about 20-odd uh, 20, 20 years ago. Uh, reference Kevin quite a lot in the book. Um, other people like Marion Shord, who've also done pioneering work on this before, if you've come across her, she's absolutely brilliant and still, still doing campaigning on this sort of stuff. So it's attempting to build on what has already come before, but also using new information, as I mentioned, that, that has become available through things like Freedom of Information. And to give them some credit where it's due, the Land Registry has, in the last couple of years, started to open up some more information on things like corporate ownership, um, which we'll perhaps revisit in, in a bit as well. But um, Again, just to give you the sense of inequality in land ownership that exists in England today, this is a, a little Guardian um, graphic that was done when, when my book first came out and it got previewed uh, in the paper. Um, I think the most, most interesting thing is, is really how, how much the aristocracy, I think, still own of England. Um, I reckon around 30% of the country is owned by the aristocracy and gentry. Um, more, more definitively, um, corporations own certainly around 18 and a half percent of England and Wales put together. Probably most of that is in England and probably a similar percentage of it is certainly in England. Um, what is... Can you be more specific on the corporations? Yeah, sure. So, so corporations, I mean, any, any limited company or, or limited liability partnership, that's who's included in there. And that can include anything from, you know, Tesco's land banking outside of a town to, for supermarkets, you know, out-of-town supermarkets through to mining companies, but also there is, you know, there's, there's confusion in, in kind of dis, uh, disentangling some of this information because there are obviously large companies that do also run some of these aristocratic estates as well. So obviously with some of these this, this stuff, it has to be best guess uh, or, 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 you know, informed guesses as much as possible. Um, I think one of the really shocking things as well is actually how little the public sector really owns. Now, 8.5% is, is a I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that that is the case because, as I mentioned earlier, some of the land registry information has become more available in recent years and the whole sector has become more opened up through things like freedom, freedom of information requests. So, um, do you know what? I, I actually would quite like to perhaps press on and perhaps take questions later if that's all right. Sorry. Um, but the, the, the thing about the public sector is also that it's shrunk a lot in the last you know, 40 years or so, and, and also under austerity. So, so, you know, as a result of privatisation under Thatcher and subsequent governments as a result of austerity under Cameron's government and subsequently um, that we've seen a shrinkage in the amount of land that the public sector owns as well as in a lot of its functions and, and the things that it's actually able to do. And, and I think even, even worse is, we, you know, we sort of get told by politicians that we're a, we're a property-owning democracy, that we all have a stake in the land nowadays. We all, it's all right, we all, we all participate in the economy, it's fine. Obviously we don't, and obviously there's an increasing number of people who aren't even able to get onto the property ladder if they wish to do so, generation rents, extremely high rents and so on, homeless you know, people are increasingly numbers of people who are homeless outright. And um, looking at kind of information on the kind of land use um, and things like the extent of urban land area and the, in, in the subset of that that's actually made up of residential homes, we can, we can get to a figure of about 5% of England that's owned by homeowners. So if you look at that, contrast the 5% owned by homeowners to a few thousand um, dukes, marquises, viscounts, city bankers and so on, you've got a sense of the inequality still in land ownership. Um, I think also what's really shocking really is how little has changed over the centuries. And somebody mentioned the Normans earlier. Well, a lot of this does unfortunately go back as far as the Norman conquest, at least in, in sort of the way in which some of the pattern of land ownership I think was and this unequal pattern of landlordship was first established. So, as I said, um, King William came over, conquered the place, said, vested all land ultimately in the crown, and then started giving it out again to, to his mates, basically. And one of his mates is um, the owner of this, um, this very, rather splendid castle here, which is Arundel Castle uh, in the South Downs. And uh, if you go to Arundel, it's a lovely little place, it's completely dominated and overshadowed by this huge castle. You do get a sense of how feudal some parts of England still are. Um, and um, a plaque in the town square reads, Since William rose and Harold fell, there have been earls at Arundel. <laughs> and, and, and the earls of Arundel later became the Dukes of Norfolk. So they added uh, a sort of feather to their bow there as well. 
Um, they're not the only ones. The, the, the Groveners, um, the, the Dukes of Westminster, as they're now known. The Groveners. Grovener is, um, uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an early Norman insult. It's Groveneur, the fat hunter, which was the, the sort of epithet given to this uh, Hugo, I think it was Hula Grovener, who, who first came over with, um, as part of the entourage with the Norman Conquest. Um, there is a, uh, a statue in um, Belgrave Square um, where, where there's, uh, of one of, the, one of the various ancestors of the current Dukes of Westminster, um, and it says proudly on it, it says, the Groveners came over with the Norman Conquest and have owned land in Cheshire and other parts of the country since that time. Um, what they inherited in London, we'll come on to in a bit, but that's a bit more recent, but that's one of the things that has given them a lot of their wealth. So, okay, um, fine, there's a lot of inequality, or we know that already, don't we, in lots of other ways, whether that's, you know, just generally uh, financial inequality in, in this country. But what, what about land ownership in its concentration and inequality actually matters to the rest of us? Is it, does that really have an impact on us? Well, uh, I would say it does in, in lots of different ways. One of the ways is uh, its ecological impact. And so, for example, um, looking at grouse moors, um, which you might think of as being uh, an entirely Victorian thing and a kind of leftover from the Victorian period, they are still there, and there are huge, huge amounts of them, huge areas of them that cover, um, by my reckoning, an area of about the size of Greater London um, is covered in grouse moors um, in, our, in, in, in England's upland areas. Um, and um, what, what that means is, so, so in fact, that... Uh, and that area is actually owned by about 150 estates, a half of, about half of which are sort of aristocrats or gentry. The other half are, I, I would sort of broadly call sort of newer money, whether that's offshore firms, investors, city bankers, oligarchs, and so on. So, um, you know, what, what happens to grouse moors is, is a form of, of, of damaging land management or mismanagement, I would call it, which involves things like this, which is rotational burning um, of the moors or the heather, um, every year in order to um, make little, little nice shoots of heather which the little grouse like to eat so that there are more of them so that more can be shot every year. Um, so every year the glorious 12th as it's called by the, by the grouse moor owners uh, is when uh, August the 12th is when the, the shooting parties go out and shoot grouse on the moors. Hurrah, what a great time had by all. Now in some ways, you know, I don't really care actually where, particularly about hunting um, very much. Others might disagree, others might think it's absolutely abhorrent, that's absolutely fine. What, what I'm particularly concerned about is the ecological impacts of it and the impacts it has on the rest of us. Now, um, you know, in places like Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire, for example, lives downstream from a gigantic grouse moor which is owned by one guy called Richard Bannister. Um, it's a 16,000 acre grouse moor. The town itself, you know, got a lot of people living there, and the, the end result of all this burning and mismanagement of the moor is that it floods more regularly there. That's because it can't act as a properly functioning ecosystem anymore because the landowner has decided to use it in this way. By burning it, by draining it, he's dried out the moor, dried out the peat, which is creating, you know, adding to climate change by off-gassing all this carbon, and it's also meaning it can't act like this, the sponge of, for water that it should do anymore. Um, and then it, when it rains heavily, it floods and flashes off the, off, off the, off the moor. So that, that to me is, is one microcosm, one example of how uh, concentrated forms of land ownership can have a really big impact on communities living nearby and on the wider health of the environment and on climate change and things like that. And I guess that, um, I guess there's a lot of landowners who, there's, there's certainly landowners who treat their land very well and, and look after it for the, for the long term or are trying to rewild their estates and so on. But I think there's also this bigger kind of aura around land ownership, particularly the aristocratic landowners, which says well, we are the rightful custodians of the countryside. We, of course, we're the stewards of the land for generations to come. We're looking after it right. You don't need to worry about that. And I think actually a lot more scrutiny does need to be paid to that sort of claim and to look at things like this and to say, well, actually, we need to be holding very, this very small number of landowners to account a lot more. Um, this isn't just about rural land and its concentration in the countryside. This is also about um, who owns our, you know, our cities and towns. Um, you know, one example of that is, is who owns central London um, and some of the most expensive real estate nowadays on the planet. Um, this is, yeah, this is a map of some of central London. You can see um, Hyde Park and, you know, Mayfair over here. So Mayfair, as you can see, Grosvenor Square in the middle, 
bit of a giveaway. It's owned by the Groveners, the Dukes of Westminster, as I mentioned earlier. Um, in Mayfair nowadays, the price of land there is about £21,000 per square metre. So yeah, so it's not really a surprise that it's the most expensive square on the Monopoly board. It really is the most expensive in real life as well. Um, some of these other great estates here um, are also uh, aristocratic estates, or that basically as a result of inheritances of land, lucky inheritances of land from when um, from hundreds of years ago, when when actually all this was all this was fields. I remember when all this was fields, um, marshy fields. In fact, probably not worth very much. But because of the luck um, of, of the expansion of London this direction, it could have you know gone north, south, east, west, whatever. Um, the fact they'd have these inheritances and kept hold of them, these estates have become extremely wealthy. And so you know nowadays you can pick up a copy of the Sunday Times Rich List, which every year. Um, the Sunday Times tries to convince us that actually it's uh, a really an emblem of meritocracy, that all these people are self-made billionaires. And actually you can still find there, in the top of the Sunday Times wretch list, people like the Groveners, people like um, the Dukes of Bedford, people like uh, Viscount Portman and so on, who own other bits of London, as shown on this map. This, somebody also mentioned the church earlier. This is owned by the church commissioners. It's the Paddington estate of the church commissioners. So they're also raking in quite a lot of money from that as well. Um, what, does it, what impact does this have? Well, again, I think increasingly, as we've seen London's property market and uh, become so overheated in the last 20 or 30 years, um, uh, homes are no longer treated for some as places to live, but as assets, uh, effectively. Um, and, um, and increasingly, that means that actually they're not lived in, they're actually left empty, um, as this headline here is, is talking about. This was um, uh, an investigation uh, I was involved with a couple of years ago in the aftermath of the Grenfell Tower disaster, fire, tragedy. There were sort of hundreds of families still waiting to be rehoused after that. Um, and I sort of heard about stories that there were quite a lot of empty properties um, in the borough of Kensington and Chelsea. And I was like, well, that's, that's interesting. Why is that sort of not being used to rehouse people temporarily? Um, and so I sent an F FOI request to the, the council, the borough of Kensington and Chelsea, and said to them, could you give me a list of where these properties are, these empty properties are, and who owns them? And they wrote back saying, absolutely not. Obviously, this is private information. Never going to reveal that. But we can give you a very helpful um, spreadsheet in which we list the number of, of, of empty properties um, in the borough by, by ward. What they hadn't done, unfortunately for them, is actually redact and remove all the names <laughs> of the owners of those properties which was very unfortunate on their behalf. Um, now, obviously, that could have caused privacy concerns if we'd just simply published it all and didn't want to do that, didn't want to kind of, you know, be, be accused of being irresponsible here. So took it to the Guardian, um, talked to them. <laughs> not, not being irresponsible at all, but, but, you know, in the end, actually, what got published, what got revealed were actually only a few of the names in this list of public significance, of public, you know, interest, really. And so, you know, I think we were talking about uh, here, like, mayor, mayor, Former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, for example, has a long-term empty property in Kensington and Chelsea for, for some reason. He's left empty for several years. Um, uh, the Candy Brothers, who are lovely people. Um, yeah. If you haven't heard of them, look up the back pages of Private Eye. Uh, they're usually mostly in there most weeks um, for their property development um, things that they're doing and getting up to. Um, and obviously lots of offshore firms as well investing in the property. Um, I mean, you know, we, we talk about a housing crisis. And, um, and, and obviously politicians talk about, well, we need to build more homes, we need to build more homes. And say, so, yeah, okay, fine, we need to build more homes. We can, we can probably accept that that is definitely a part of the solution. But we don't talk about necessarily the, the, the fact that there are lots of empty homes. So the 60,000 um, homes that have been left empty for more than two years in, um, in, in, in England and Wales. We don't talk about the fact um, that actually it's not like that the price of bricks and mortar themselves have suddenly gone up or construction costs have necessarily skyrocketed in the last 20 years. It's the price of land and the location value of land that has gone up. And um, that rather than having a go at the planning system and trying to sort of call for, a, you know, getting rid of this red tape of the planning system, which many kind of free marketeers would do um, and often do, uh, actually we should be thinking a lot more closely about the 
the, land, the concentration of land ownership and the way in which the value of land is able to be captured by a small number of landowners rather than actually going back to the community who created it in the first place. You know, London has not just been created by landowners, it's been, been created by all of us who live there and work here and all the public investments that have gone into things like you know, hospitals, schools, tube stops, all those sorts of things. All of that obviously adds to the value of a piece of land, but the value of it is usually captured by the small number of people who actually own that land. So I've probably given you a very depressing picture of <laughs> land ownership um, in England today, but I also wanted to um, sort of not finish before talking a little bit about how change has happened in the past and how it can still happen and how there is hope and, what, and what's been going on at the moment. Um, just a nice bucolic slide of, you know, from World War II, uh, Britain fight for it now. Um, obviously that's the image that often a lot of people have of of the countryside, I guess. But um, the thing is, actually, beneath the surface of this sort of pastoral ill deal, there's also this, this, I think, a really exciting, buried history of radicalism in England, um, and a particularly a radical history about land reform that we've, we've often forgotten about. Um, it goes back to before the Norman Conquest. It goes back to the history of common land, for example. It goes back to weird and wonderful customs that people before the Norman Conquest had in the way they parceled out land in a much more equitable way. Um, talk about that a bit more in the book. We can talk about it afterwards if you like. It's called Gavelkind. It was something that the people in Kent and Wales particularly practised in the way in which um, they allowed um, sons and daughters to actually inherit land much more, much more um, equitably than the Normans brought in, which was male primogeniture, this sexist idea that only the eldest-born son of the aristocrat can inherit the estate. It goes forward to things like during the Civil War, when, or the English Revolution, as I think it would be better called, after the, we cut off the king's head, um, along came all these wonderful um, and weird and wonderful um, different groups of people like the Levellers and the Diggers and Gerard Wynne Stanley, who said, actually, the earth should be treated as a common treasury for all. We should all have a right to be able to you know, partake of it, and it's a temporary thing you know, that we, we, we should be able to steward it, but, but all, all benefit from it. But to bring it right up to date, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things that have happened in the last, um, well, maybe not right up to date first. Let me just say something else, which is that there was a previous wave of land reform in England, which actually came out of the, um, the end of enclosure and the, the, end, the, the last few decades of the 19th century, the Victorian period. So I mentioned earlier about the second doomsday and how that got kind of people really irate and, and, and angry about, rightfully so, I think, about the concentration of land ownership. This was also the era in which we saw the, the last enclosures of land and the fight back against some of the enclosure of common land. We had the, the Commons Preservation Society, um, Octavia Hill, the foundation of the National Trust and some of the first conservation groups that tried to kind of bring back the idea of land for the people and the access to the countryside for, for everyone to enjoy. And, but also out of this, and something that we've forgotten about really, is that this is when the idea of the allotment was born really. The allotment is, sounds like a very parochial thing, kind of a dad's army type idea, but actually it's quite a radical idea. It's a concept that you can have access to land to grow your own food on outside of the market and kind of outside of the state as well, really. It's often councils own the land for allotments, but effectively you've got a statutory right to demand access to one. Um, that somehow, unfortunately, has kind of broken down in the modern era because we, you know, particularly in places like London where kind of councils have been exempted from having to do, provide allotment space in a lot of cases. But it's still there on the statute book as something which we should be exercising far more if we, if we really want more access to land. But to, to, to now bring it up to date, um, there, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on at the moment. We, we're obviously faced with huge crises in the way of the housing crisis, the climate emergency we faced, ecological crises, uh, Brexit... Um, but actually, a lot of those crises are also forcing reappraisals of actually, I think, the way in which we own and use and manage uh, land. So Brexit, uh, for all of its woes, is actually forcing a discussion about farm subsidies, for example, and the fact that we reward very large landowners essentially just for owning land. And that's how subsidies, you know, the farm subsidy system has been over the last uh, couple of decades, particularly. That now might actually um, be broken. That, might, that, that link might finally be broken, which, which would be, I think, good news. Um, another thing that's happening as a result of the housing crisis is that many more um, groups are starting to kind of demand land reform as part of the way of solving the housing crisis. So uh, groups like Shelter, for example, they've got a report coming out in a couple of weeks basically saying we need land reform. Um, we need to allow councils to uh, buy land cheaply again as they once were able to in the couple of decades after the Second World War when a huge amount of our council housing was actually built, new towns were built and so on. There was an entirely different form of land compensation rules in place at that time which allowed councils to buy land more cheaply and hence create a whole raft of, of affordable and, and social housing for people to live in. 
Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's obviously moves um, to change the way in which we use our land and, and to come down, you know, to kind of say to landowners who own those huge grouse moors, those huge areas of our countryside that have mistreated them so badly, that in an area of climate breakdown, that's just no longer appropriate, that we sustain this Victorian sport that's doing such damage to our, to our land and our landscape. So, you know, people who've been campaigning for an end to grouse shooting or an end to the burning of grouse moors, those sort of moves against that uh, alongside all the exciting stuff that's going on with people like Extinction Rebellion and groups like that as well. So I would say there's a lot of hope. Um, there's a group called the Land Justice Network um, who have a wonderful big map of, or a poster about land reform. I've only got one of these copies, but you can order them online from landjustice.uk or have a look at this one afterwards if you like. There's the Land Magazine, which if you, if you don't know about it, it's also a lovely, wonderfully illustrated magazine about land in, um, in the UK. All sorts of things that people are now starting to do, and I think there is now and an, an, an is, an is a really exciting and growing conversation about the need for land reform in England. And plus also we should learn from Scotland, because they've been doing a lot of this over the last 20 years as well. Thank you. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, so thanks. For, I, I understand that you've had a lot of questions already. Um, if you've got more questions, please do keep them in mind. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Um, we normally come back at four. Maybe we'll come back a bit earlier than that because so many of you have got questions. So maybe if we come back at about 10 to four. Um, so please do help yourself to tea and coffee. I have tried to address the biscuit situation, <laughs> um, but I haven't checked if they've actually put any out there. Um, but yes, thank you for coming. Um, please buy a book and we'll see you back in about Hello, hello. Oh, that's quite loud. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name's Carl. I'm back again. Um, I don't need to do an introduction. I don't know why I started that. Thank you all for sticking around. Um, I hope you managed to take advantage of the tea, coffee, and biscuits that uh, I managed to get on. I'm very... You're welcome. Um, it's just one of the many benefits of being a trustee here is I can make biscuits appear. Um, okay, so uh, I hope you all enjoyed the talk. Um, we're now back for the q and I'm sorry we started slightly late. It's because I was chatting to someone outside. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, please do raise your hand, and then I'll, either me or Stephen will run around with the microphone. Um, we've got quite a lot of you who I think would probably want to ask questions. Um, so please do um, put your hand up and to be respectful of everyone in the space um, and yes if you've got a question raise your hand now cool yeah hi thanks very much um, you made reference to the Kevin Cahill book and I'd just like to say that, that I have a, a copy and I, I got it four or five years ago and it was 70 pounds so I would highly recommend your book which is more up to date <laughs> and I'm not his agent I'm not his uh, um, <laughs> Um, but in Kevin's book, he mentions the relationship between the military and uh, phrases like fighting for your country. And he points out that most people that fought for their country didn't actually do that. They were fighting for, if they were lucky, for a rent book. And, and, um, and he goes into why MPs, multi-millionaire MPs, you know, why would they have a sort of a £70,000 a year job as an MP? And he's talking about keeping the system going as opposed to um, uh, the, the, the money that keeps them there. So do you make any reference in your book, an update to that, on those, those issues between um, people really are hoodwinked into thinking they're fighting for their country. They're not. They're fighting for a system to maintain the system. And the biggest people that will lose out are the aristocracy, the monarchy. Um, uh, they've got more to lose than, than people have got nothing. Are we, are we doing one at a time? Yeah, we'll do one at a time. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I can remember the question. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, think, I think Kevin might actually be, Kevin Cahill might actually be um, a military man. He might actually have been trained in that. So anyway, that's he's probably, probably a particular area of interest for him. But um, I mean, I, make, I sort of try and talk about in, in the book a bit about kind of things that people like MPs like Richard Bennion and others and the sort of sense in which, well, is it really, is it really... <laughs> Right, that you know, we have a country in which we're still effectively sending the Lords of the Manor to, to Parliament to represent us, but you know, obviously people, people voted for him. Um, but um, I mean, you know, there are an increasing number of MPs who are also invested in the property market, you know, people like Jeremy Hunt, for example, who have uh, plenty, of, um, you know, plenty of properties of his, of his own, you know, they're, la they're landlords, and so is that, you know, is that in itself help contributing to the fact that we're not really solving the housing crisis? I think that's, 
that would be one thing I would say. I suppose, I mean, I hope we, we don't have to fight for our country in that, in the, that respect, you know, the kind of the World War II poster that I showed people fighting for, for Britain. I mean, that's, that sort of war is not really likely to happen again, is it? It's, it would be it, 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 complete elimination by nuclear weapon if, if it ever comes, I suppose. But, but I do think there is a sense, I think, I think perhaps what you're getting at is that, yeah, this is the system, well, I think the system, the system of land ownership, the secrecy of the system of land ownership um, is, is obviously very convenient to preserving power and wealth. And, you know, part of the, the way in which people historically have preserved power and wealth is also to, to stop people just seeing it and stop sort of, you know, envious eyes, as it were, from seeing um, what lies over your giant 10-foot wall or your castle wall or your whatever. And, and so this is a kind of a digital version of that walls of the land registry that have been erected to kind of effectively say we're not going to let you see this that easily um, and to reveal the inequality that lies beneath. So yeah, in that respect I guess I'm talking about a system that has been perpetuated. Can people hear me? Sorry, is this, is this actually on? Right, next question uh, Hi guys, thanks for the talk, very interesting. I haven't managed to read your book yet but it's definitely on the list. I'm currently meeting my way through Progress and Poverty by Henry George um, and so I'm interested to know if you're supportive of realigning our tax system to, for land value tax to avoid people getting rich off, I guess, non-productive parts of the economy? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, and and uh, it's great you're reading Progress and Poverty. I've, I've, I've read it as, as well, but I, what I decided in the book was that I wasn't going to focus too heavily on land value tax. I'm not an economist. Um, uh, I, I think there's much better treatments of it, not least from Henry George himself, uh, writing obviously back in the in the 19th century, in, in the middle of that ferment of excitement about land reform that I was mentioning earlier. He was obviously coming from the US, but talking, he did tours of the UK at the time as well and tried to kind of get people more interested in this sort of stuff. Uh, what I would say is that I think that there have been some excellent advocates for land value tax over the years, but um, uh, including, including prime ministers in, the, in this country who, who have actually implemented it. You know, Lloyd George and Churchill actually did implement a form of land value tax for a while, which was repealed again. Um, and other forms of things like betterment taxes or, or development taxes that have kind of at attempted to be introduced by Labour governments since then. Um, but again, rapidly repealed, usually by the Conservatives, unfortunately. Um, what I would say, though, is that um, what advocates of land value tax, um, I think, could do with doing a little bit more is also doing more to, let's talk about the detail of LVT, uh, as it's abbreviated and is known, but also doing more to build that movement that is needed to kind of get land reform more generally on the agenda. I also think that sometimes the, the, the focus on the specific solution or proposed solution of land value tax can obscure some of the other things that could be done perhaps more easily as a first step to getting down the road towards land value tax. So, you know, I talk in the book a bit about things like community right to buy, which has been introduced in Scotland in the last 20 years, or a greater right to roam over, over London countryside. Those things may seem unrelated to the value of land, but they are also part and parcel, I think, of the need to try and get land reform generally up the agenda. And I think they also are kind of a bit more kind of easier for people to get their heads around and will get people interested in these other questions around the value of land and the need to tax it in a different way. Those, those would be my suggestions. But yes, I do support land value tax, different forms of land value tax, certainly. And I think, you know, talk about that a little bit in the book, yeah. Hi. Um, in uh, The Spider's Web, Britain's Second Empire, uh, it is suggested that um, substantial proportions of the countryside uh, and especially London property uh, maybe similar high percentages, it, it is uh, somewhere between very difficult and impossible to establish ownership uh, due to deliberate opacity um, of uh, shell corporations purportedly uh, in tax havens but truly administered from the square mile. Um, these are the proceeds of crime here and elsewhere. Um, you, you know, we, we, we are probably the most corrupt place on the planet right now, yay us. Um, and uh, we store the proceeds of, uh, you know, people who have stripped their countries, cocaine money, oligarchs, etc. 
could this land not just be seized since it is obviously the proceeds of crime? There's a larger discussion. Thank you. Interesting. Um, so yeah, you talk about offshore land, I think, as I think, kind of gave you a glimpse of on the map earlier, uh, uh, map.hilton'sengland.org, if you want to have another closer look at it. Obviously, Private Eye have done a lot of stuff digging into this as well, which is the, you know, the amounts of land that does look to be owned offshore or overseas. Um, yes, uh, there, there are obviously lots of concerns, you know, from the National Crime Agency down about the amount of, uh, about where the proceeds of some of this money is coming from. Um, and one of the things that has happened in recent years to try and at least start to open up some of that information is, is uh, something called unexplained wealth orders um, that groups like Global Witness and Transparency International have campaigned for for many years. And the first few unexplained wealth orders are now starting to be deployed by courts to kind of try and say, well, yeah. in the UK, yes, in the UK, yeah. Uh, only a few have been used so far. I think there was one was kind of reported on quite recently in the papers. You might have heard about it. But effectively a way to sort of say a presumption that to, to kind of change the presumption in favour, you should you should prove that you know where this money has come from that it isn't that it hasn't isn't being used to launder you know to launder that money through the the, the UK property market um, and you know questions around where some of the money, for example, that has come from from Russians former state officials, for example, whether that's come from um, this, you know the corrupt, corruption or the sale of the kind of flogging off of Russian state assets, for example, during the 90s. And, and so on and so on. But yeah, uh, if you want more on that, I'm definitely not an expert, but I would definitely recommend, you probably have already read it, but Nicholas Shackson's book, um, which is called Treasure Islands, uh, and also um, uh, Moneyland by Oliver Bullock, who, who's another really great book that's come out recently. Um, I don't know about seizing it. I would definitely say you don't need to have necessarily own land owned in the UK offshore. Um, it could be quite easily owned by whoever, but domiciled in the UK and therefore subject more to UK scrutiny and tax and so on. Um, why do we need to have those, that form of ownership anymore? Um, I think seizure is a, an interesting one to getting into. I think that's a slightly more radical thing. Um, I wouldn't necessarily think so. That's the best way of dealing with it because I think the, the real problem there is about the transparency anyway. So I would say make it transparent first to see where that money is coming from and who owns it um, and then take things from there. And obviously if it is you know, if there is corruption going on in those cases, then obviously there is a, there is a legal process that can be followed. Can I make a statement? So I just wanted to highlight the um, psychological barrier of not owning land. Having grown up half my life in America and half my life in the UK, I've always heard of, about this American can-do attitude, and I can tell you, it's completely down to land ownership. You can imagine what it felt like to the settlers who arrived in America and realized all the land they could see was theirs. You can imagine the enthusiasm, the optimism, the spirit that would bring, and I would urge British people to do all they can to free up some of this entrenched, unproductive, rentier wealth, and I would urge that um, it can be done right after Brexit. So be positive about it. Yes, I'm, I'm, just to say, I'm sure you didn't mean this, but uh, obviously it wasn't uh, their land originally either, I guess, in terms of the, the First Nations and, and Native Americans, obviously. But the first settlers who arrived in America, obviously, were uh, colonialists, obviously, themselves. I mean, one of the, can I just make one point, actually? One of the things I try and also draw out in the book is actually how, how much wealth that came from the slave trade that obviously Britain wholeheartedly played its part in uh, has come back into and is, 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 is seen in, in some of the big Palladian mansions that still stand on aristocrats' land today. So effectively, if land reform should be and, and is partly about the decolonialist agenda as well in terms of taking it back to the heart of ultimately what was the empire and trying to say, well, actually, we need to sort of start to deconstruct some of that as well. And it's about deconstructing some of the power inequalities that still exist, obviously, in England and the rest of the UK today. Do you see any lessons for us in 2019 from the mass trespass of Kinder Morgan? Sorry, do you mean Kinder Scout? Kinder Scout, Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, yeah, it's Kinder Morgan. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was a mining issue. Do you want to ask the question? Yeah, then we'll ask the question on that sort of three, yeah. 
go for it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. You've got a very Scottish name, and oh, you really? and, but you write about England. Do these things apply to the whole of the United Kingdom? Thank you. Well, I just wanted to say something very cheerful that probably everybody knows because everyone's so up in things. First of all, Dick Whittington's money is still rolling into different charities because the Mercers sold his... I'm myself hoping to go to one of their sheltered... <laughs> the Mercers bought the city, bought city land. The other thing is my great-grandfather's school, which was the City of London Boys, can offer so many scholarships because the land that John Carpenter left them is now Tottenham Court Road. I thought that was just rather nice news. Thank you. <laughs> yes, of course, yeah, sure. Um, maybe I'll start with, with Scotland versus England. Um, I'm, not, I'm not aware that my name is Scottish. It's, it's... Oh, right, no, that's, that's somebody much more famous than me. Um, Rob McFarlane is another, another author who, who very nicely, kindly endorsed the book. But um, no, my, my surname, Shrubsole, is from, from Kent. Um, but um, anyway, but no, I mean, what, what the situation in Scotland, um, I can definitely recommend reading Who Owns Scotland by Andy Whiteman, who, which is a much, you know, very comprehensive survey of, of what goes in, of, of land ownership in Scotland. He is now a Green MSP and has been campaigning for, for many uh, decades on, on issues around land and access and ownership in Scotland. Um, frankly, the situation in Scotland is even worse than in England. There, about 500 people own more or less half the land in Scotland, so it's even more concentrated up there. Um, but but I, think, I think the interesting thing is, is about Scotland is actually how much there has been in terms of land reform in the last 20 years, and there, there's been not one but two land reform acts that's gone through, that have gone through the Scottish Parliament. Um, and those have done some, 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 some uh, partial but still exciting things to start to pick away at the insane concentration of ownership in of land ownership in Scotland. One of those, um, or, or the way in which land, uh, land is, is, is viewed and, and used, one of those is community right to buy. And that was, that was um, basically it gives community, democratically constituted local community groups, a uh, first right of refusal on an estate when it comes up for sale. Uh, a time, a, a kind of a grace period in which to raise money to buy that land and access to some form of public funds or loans from a kind of central bank or whatever, a central pot of money, to be able to then um, kind of bid for that, to be able to help buy, buy out the land or the, or the property. And that's benefited lots of communities in Scotland, particularly uh, island communities that have um, been depopulated since the time of the Highland Clearances, which also extended to parts of the lowlands and to the islands. Uh, I visited one last summer, the Isle of Ulva, um, off the west coast. It's a beautiful little island, very windswept, very rainy. <laughs> and when I went there, um, uh, there were six people left on it, um, having, having come down from a map population of 600 to 200 years ago. They were almost all cleared off the land by the landlord um, because it was no longer profitable for them to be there. The, the industry they were working on had sort of collapsed economically. Um, but they were cleared off it forcefully by the, by the landowner. And now, just on the day I went, for, fortunately and completely accidentally, uh, the, 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 that, that very small community had succeeded in a, the community buyout, uh, which meant they would be able to take the land back into their own hands and to some extent repopulate it and to rejuvenate its economy, which I thought was just really exciting. And that should be something we could do, communities could be able to do in England if we had that, right? and, and obviously the rest of the UK. Um, the Kinder Scout Trespass, yeah, um, wonderful, wonderful um, action, probably, um, you know, very, uh, very, um, successful direct action um, that ultimately led um, to the right to roam. Um, right to roam, um, which exists in England and Wales nowadays, unfortunately though, is only partial still. It's a right to roam over certain forms of habitat uh, and landscapes such as moorland and mountain and coastline. Some of our most beautiful landscapes, absolutely, no question, and it's a great step forward, but they are still only about 10% of England and Wales. So I would say uh, again, this is somewhere where we can learn from Scotland, is that we should be pushing and learning from the, the spirit of the Kinder Scout trespasses and pushing for a full right to roam over all uncultivated land <coughs> excuse me, in England and Wales, like there is in Scotland, like has existed in Scotland since 2003. And that would be really um, honouring the memory of and the spirit of the Kinder Scout trespasses uh, much more. Um, and I guess, yeah, your positive point about not all... And, and not all landowners are obviously evil. I'm not trying to make that point in the book at all. Like, certainly there are plenty of landowners. I mean, I talk about, for example, an estate called the Nepp Estate in um, Sussex who has done a huge amount to rewild its estate in the last uh, 20 years. There are some great landowners out, out there who have clearly got their eye on, the, on future generations and on the future. Equally, though, 
we can't just leave it to you know necessarily entirely voluntary um, you know voluntarism on the part of a few well-meaning people. We do also need to I think have greater scrutiny of this, uh, greater public pressure and more campaigning and more people getting interested in the subject of land, which I think has been obviously overlooked for far too long. Anyway, that was a very lengthy answer to three questions. Sorry. Um, I was wondering if you know um, how the UK compares to like other neighbouring European countries in terms of land ownership. Shall I just do them one at a time, actually? Okay. And then, then I'll just quickly go through them more quickly. Um, uh, that will be the, my next book, Who Owns France? <laughs> out 2020. No, I have no idea. Um, I'm a, no, I'm not going to make a series out of this. Um, somebody else should, though. Um, so if you fancy doing that, that would be, uh, that'd be awesome. There is somebody who's trying to do Who Owns Wales now, so hopefully that, they'll be looking into that soon. But, um, I mean, I don't know very much about um, the concentration of land ownership in some other countries, but I certainly, certainly have heard that it is pretty bad in the UK compared to many other countries. Brazil is apparently even worse. Um, apart from that, I'm not so sure. But in terms of the transparency around land ownership, I know a little bit more about some of that. So, you know, in France, you can go to your local town hall, walk up to the door and say, um, I'd like to look at the local cadastre. And the cadastre is the, the, the map of land ownership over the area and the kind of the index of who owns the land and the map that accompanies it. And that was brought in after, this, after the French Revolution um, by Napoleon, who alongside the metric system and all these other sort of you know, innovations that he brought in, which we obviously in England uh, you know, resisted for as long as possible, you know, hugging to our imperial weights and measures and all that sort of nonsense. Um, he brought in the cadastral system of mapping, which was a way to kind of you know, formalize uh, systems of land ownership and transparency around that for the purposes of basically taxation. And we had a chance to introduce that in, in England back in those, those days as well. But as you might have expected, there was a lot of resistance to that from, from large landowners at the time, so it never actually happened. There are other countries around the world as well that have, have implemented much more um, transparent systems of land ownership. Everything from the state of Montana, for some reason, has put all of their information online. You can just go to the Montana government's website and look at the map of who owns land in Montana. You can go to the New Zealand government's website and you can download all the data there on who owns land there, including um, Peter Thiel's estate. Have you heard of Peter Thiel? Yeah. He uh, is a Silicon Valley billionaire who in the, in the, has bought a, a ranch in New Zealand uh, in advance of the apocalypse happening so he can go down under and, uh, and, and weather the apocalypse. Anyway, um, that's another story. So yeah, other countries are better when it comes to transparency. Um, Probably a lot of them are better when it comes to actual inequality or equality of land ownership, but again, that's a future book, hopefully, for someone. Hi. The first question is uh, for the waterfall uh, ownership, like 30% uh, aristocratic and 5% homeowners. I just wonder how... That, that's like a static image, so I just wonder how that has changed over time. Uh, for example, if it's changed, who, who transfer what ownership to who and what do they use uh, when they unlock that value of land? And the second one is when I first heard of this uh, title of the event, I literally just Googled um, who owns England. And it seems like, um, I, I just want to kind of like clarify this. What's the relationship between leasehold, freehold, and ultimately the Queen? Because um, some of the articles I read uh, say it's like, even though we have freehold, um, the Queen ultimately has the, um, the right to, to recall or repossess those freeholds. Yep, you're abs yep absolutely. I thought about writing a, a very short book, which was uh, Who Owns England? Uh, one page, uh, The Crown, that's it. Um, which I couldn't have prob probably couldn't have sold for £20, though, really, because I think people would have felt a bit shortchanged. You're absolutely right that The Crown does ultimately own all land in England, technically. But the, the, the days in which The Crown could ultimately seize freeholds off people, um, which are kind of effectively let off people, a, a, a fee in land, a fee simple in land, is essentially a kind of a, a form of tenancy off, off The Crown. But it, it, the days in which the Crown could realistically go around and say, right, give us your land back, mate, because we, we don't like you having it anymore, have kind of long gone. So effectively, freehold does give you pretty much a right to do what you want. <laughs> Obviously, leasehold is a different matter, and you know, all sorts of problems have crept in around leasehold properties with escalating ground rents that get paid unbeknownst by leasehold owners to, to the ultimate freehold owner. That's, that's another issue as well. Um, in terms of how the pattern of land ownership has changed over time, well, it would be wonderful to get a whole kind of time series data from the land registry, which, again, they would probably have, of some, some description anyway. Obviously, again, that's kind of hidden behind their, behind their, um, their, behind their paywall and behind their, 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 kind of, you know, their, their ownership of the data. But, I mean, certainly by looking at some of those kind of 
doomsday surveys over time, um, you can start to get a sense of it. Um, the, the doomsday book itself um, kind of gives hints, enough hints that the, the, the land of England, that, about, about who owned the land of England, that around 200 Norman barons owned about half of England in 1086. And uh, by the time of the second doomsday survey, around 4,000 peers owned about half of England. And today, you know, the data I've presented here in the book points to maybe 25,000 landowners owning about half of England. So the miracle of trickle-down economics, a thousand years of English history and we've gone from 200 to 25,000 people owning half the country. <laughs> that's how it might have changed. Well, that's what, yes, that's what Kevin is, yeah, is looking at, yeah. Um, land reform will have to be very, very careful, won't it, because of the kind of global capital, military, industrial complex. We could end up with Britain owned by a whole load of multinational corporates or we're still, rob you know, multinational rubber, rubber barons. So it's going to have to be very careful. Could you make some comments on that? Uh, I mean, to some extent, it already is. I mean, you know, you, look, you saw the map of, of land ownership earlier. I mean, there's also a lot of uh, what I can't map yet, but what I've, I've pointed to in terms of the figures is, is the amount of land that is owned by corporations, uh, by companies, you know, kind of 18% um, or so of the UK. You know, one of the ways in which, obviously, the way in which we structure the economy has changed immensely since Victorian times, obviously, is the growth of the corporation as a kind of, cor you know, corporate entities. They didn't really own very much land then at all. Obviously, nowadays, they do own a lot of land. But... You know, I would, I would also caution about this necessarily being a kind of thing that is being done by other people, foreign people to, to poor little innocent old England. You know, offshore was pioneered. The whole concept of offshore tax havens was really pioneered by England, by, by the UK. Some of the earliest um, records I can find of, of, of land owned offshore is actually aristocratic estates, you know, kind of the homegrown aristocracy who decided to try and avoid taxes in the 70s when they were being ratcheted up by left-wing governments and then decided to, uh, to invest their estates offshore. So I think you know, we, should, we should guard against you know, that sort of practice by, by anyone, whether that's being practiced by people around the world or, or people close to home. I think that's you know, important to be, be guarding against that. Uh, hi, guys. Um, I'm just curious. Um, I just want to ask a question about um, the land again. So I know we've touched on you know, how much you know, land um, most of these... Um, these you know wealthy aristocrats um, own, but what about animals and creatures sort of on these lands? So, in terms of preservation and, and the habitats, um, what does that mean in terms of um, you know I don't know protecting I don't know animals that are on there or um, just yeah I just want to know if you touch on that in in the book and, and what that means um, yeah just in terms of preservation. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I do try and talk about it a bit. It's, um, you know, there's a whole, again, one of the ways in which landowners have tried to kind of protect their power and, and, and autonomy is to resist anything that really impacts upon the absolute right to private property. And uh, that in the 20th century has also, also meant things like the extension of um, environmental protections. So um, the, we have a system of, of, of nature reserves, of sites of special scientific interest, were brought in first after the, the Second World War, but wasn't really enforced for very uh, until really the early 80s. Um, so for a while, people who um, were issued notices, landowners who were issued notices saying, you've got land which is, we think is a site of special scientific interest, we'll send you a notice. That's great, isn't it? <laughs> and very little else was really done to kind of enforce or protect those notifications, those, those SSSI notifications. That changed because it started to come about that, well, environmentalists were saying, well, hang on a minute, these SSSIs are meant to be our, our most precious and protected sites, but they're being trashed. Um, and landowners are just getting away with trashing them. So what happened was a, another new law was brought in in the early 80s called the Wildlife and Countryside Act 1981. And that was intended to kind of give greater protection to wildlife and, 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 and these, particularly these sites of special scientific interest. In the process of that law coming into effect, it took a while for it to go through Parliament and to actually come into, into force. And in the process of that, a staggering number of landowners actually decided to go and destroy the SSSIs on their land to make sure that they could continue to use the land how, in however they wanted to. So you had instances of you know, golf courses 
digging up SSSIs and getting rid of them effectively to make sure that they couldn't be, you know, they were no longer notified afterwards because the, the, the thing that had made them exciting and scientifically interesting and precious had gone. Luckily, not too many people actually did that. And today we do have a better system of more protected SSSIs. But I think that, that gives you one sense in which I think that system of private property or land ownership does kind of unfortunately breed a sense of, well, I want to have, this is my land, I'm going to do whatever I want with it. Um, so if, if we need to do something to kind of really, really inculcate that sense in which land is kind of held for the future, for, 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 on behalf of all of us and on you know, the ecosystems that it sustains should be preserved, really. Which political parties in the UK have got the best stance on this? I think this is the last question, isn't it? Yeah. So this is a good last question. Good. Well, I do think that, like, look, uh, all, all political parties are having to move towards um, taking a greater interest in land, I think. And that's because of things like the housing crisis, because of things like, you know, the fact that, as I said earlier, groups are starting to push all political parties on things like we need to build more affordable housing and that involves some form of land reform. Um, the Green Party um, recently, of England and Wales, because it's a separate Green Party in Scotland that's been pushing a lot of the land reform stuff that I mentioned in Scotland. But the Green Party in England and Wales recently adopted as one of their policies a, the, a community right to buy. They're going to be pushing for a community right to buy in England, which is great. Um, uh, the Labour Party um, ha, are, are publishing a report this coming week on land reform. And disclaimer, I did have a role in co-authoring some of it, so that's, that's why I'm mentioning it now, but also lots of other people involved. It's really exciting that they're publishing it. Um, so look out for that this coming week. Um, the Liberal Democrats, um, uh, I mean, as the party that you know, used to be the Liberal Party, which actually, um, actually brought in a land value tax uh, for a short period of time, about a century ago, Lib Dems have, have, have long had an interest in land reform. I think they probably need to do more to kind of championing it again um, uh, and, and, and really push it forward. Um, which obviously leaves us with the uh, current ruling party, um, the Conservatives. But even the Conservatives, even the Conservatives are starting to do more. Now, if you look at the much maligned 2017 Conservative Manifesto, which obviously put paid to the Conservative majority, but did actually include some interesting things in there, mentioning things around um, to do with the housing crisis and to do with the fact that, um, that, that it's very loosely hinted at, but effectively they were hinting at things around the need to allow councils to buy land more cheaply again, um, something called land value capture, which, again, groups like Shelter and, and others like that are starting to push for. So, I mean, my, 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 my view is you have to hold politicians to their account on whoever it is, and you have to grab these tiny little crumbs that do get thrown occasionally in manifestos and after politicians' mouths and hold them to account for those things. Obviously, we should be pushing for more. You know, I do think the Greens and Labour increasingly are starting to do more on land reform, which is great, but I do think we should hold all politicians to account. And we should organise, um, and we should get active. So I hope you all are doing that, and I hope you'll do that on land reform in the future as well. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you all so much for coming. Perfect timing. We've got two minutes to spare. Um, so we'll be back again on the 16th of June with uh, Kerry Hudson and James Bloodworth talking about Kerry's new book, Lowborn. Um, so we'll see you then in two weeks. Um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks.